So we had uh, 300 restaurants in New York City and the ads that were being shown were happening in Albany and in Massachusetts. <laughs> and, and so one of the things that we realized was, hey, the reason no one's coming in is because even if they do like the offer, even if they do click on it, it's way too far away. But it also got us thinking, which is, we were working with every one of the major ad mobile ad networks at the time. This is 2011. And it's like, if these guys can't do location-based targeting, that's a big opportunity. This is LA is Good For You, a podcast about founders and funders who are building LA's most interesting companies. We are your hosts, Suze and Kevin. On this week's episode, we'll introduce you to Eli Portnoy, founder of two LA companies, Think Near and Sense360. Suze, I think Eli's story of pivoting Think Near from a service that helped restaurants find more customers to a hyper-local ad network is one of the best pivot stories I've ever heard. What did you think? I think it was super scary, and, and I'm so, so glad it worked out. And I, I couldn't stop thinking how perfectly timed it was um, and how much guts Eli actually had to pull the plug on the original idea and admit that he was wrong. Kevin, did you even get a count of how many businesses Eli set up? And he is a true serial entrepreneur. No, I, I honestly, I lost track. Um, and I think it's going to be something that our listeners really enjoy uh, because there are so many great stories in here about starting businesses, selling businesses, pivoting businesses. Uh, he has a lot of great lessons to share. So let's just pick up the story there. My father is, is and was an entrepreneur and my grandfather was. Um, and basically, um, in the community I grew up in, in Mexico, just about everyone I looked at, everywhere I looked, everyone was an entrepreneur. The idea of starting a business um, was just really natural to just all around me in my community. Did you try anything when you were a kid? Did you have like a little lemonade stand or something like that? Um, I, I didn't. So um, the the closest thing I had to a kind of like a, an entrepreneurial um, experience growing up was in high school. I was the president of the student body. And one of the, the first thing I did, maybe the only thing I did as part of that was um, I recognized that there was no cafeteria, there was no vending machines, there was nowhere to like buy anything on the school grounds. And um, and so I started a, a little um, sort of concessionary store inside the school. And um, and that actually turned out to be really successful. And now it's it's an actual like it is the cafeteria at the school, you know, 20 something years later. Really? Um, yeah, which was really cool. And that was really fun. Eli went to college at the University of Pennsylvania, where he studied international relations and political science. When recruiting season came around, he decided to become a business analyst at Deloitte. And? It wasn't a perfect fit. So um, I love the idea of building, of creating, and consulting plays a really important role in the economy, but it, they're not building. What they're doing is they're advising. And so what I found myself spending most of my time on was PowerPoint decks and just prettifying them and making them like moving a font up and down and sending it to my manager who then moved the font back. And it just <laughs> felt like it was it was interesting and glamorous to be traveling and like feeling like I was impacting some decision that some big company was making. But the reality is I was really just um, pushing paper around and that felt very unsatisfying. And um, and at the same time, like the the hours were really intense and the travel was really intense. And I kind of looked at it and I said, if I'm going to spend these these hours and I'm going to spend this effort and really go for it, I'd rather be doing something where I feel like I'm building something. 
And so I, I took a really big dramatic leap of faith, which in retrospect was um, just a very poor decision. And I, I kind of just left from leapt from one day to the next and, and started my company. And uh, yeah. Was... Tell us about that. So um, so I made the decision that I was, I was going to leave um, consulting. And as soon as I made that decision, the first thing that went through my mind is, okay, well, what, what kind of business am I going to build? And I didn't really have a great idea, but I did, I did notice a problem that I felt was worthy of, of fixing. And um, this is 2004, 2005. And so at that point, the internet had just completely changed the way recruiting happened. So when I was looking for a job coming out of school and when all of my friends were looking for a job and basically anyone I knew, they were going to monster.com and career builder and hot jobs, all of these places where they could go and like browse through a whole bunch of jobs and apply for the jobs. And it was just incredibly efficient um, way of finding work. And the internet had just transformed the way recruiting happened. But coming from Mexico and knowing a lot of people who were immigrants and also lower rate, lower wage laborers, like what I saw was that they were not taking advantage of any of these resources. And the way they were finding jobs was using um, job agencies. And what that meant was that they were going to this agency and they were paying, the job seeker was paying one week or two weeks of wage upfront to find a job. And so that felt incredibly backwards to me. Like on the one hand, you have this, this incredible um, new platform, the internet, that's just changing the way jobs are found um, for most of the population. But the lower age, the, the lower wage laborers um, are having, a, you know, not only um, not benefiting from this technology at all, but they're still using these arcane ways of finding jobs that cost them money and that are incredibly unjust. And so I thought to myself, well, that, that seems like a problem worth solving. Let me go and try and figure out how I can solve it. And the first version of our product was basically a, a, a little website that I put up for employers where they could post a job. And what we would do is we would take those jobs on a weekly basis and print them in a booklet and hand them out in a whole bunch of different places in New York City. And, um, and the idea was like, if, if employers have facility to, and, and ease of access to the internet and they can post those jobs, great, let's make that easy for them. If the, the job seeker doesn't have access to the internet, and that was the fundamental problem, they just did not have access to the internet, then we could just make those jobs accessible um, in, in a different format. And so we were kind of bridging the internet and, and the offline world. The problem was, and we found this out really, really quickly, is that um, the time between when a job was posted and the time someone picked up that newspaper, that little leaflet, was you know a week to two weeks, which was too long for most of these jobs. And the cost structure hadn't changed at all. We were still essentially a classified section, whereas like the only thing that had changed was the way those classifieds were being printed. And so I started to think through that problem, and I said, how do I solve for the speed and the cost structure to to really enhance what I was doing to to take advantage of the power of the internet. And what we came up with, it was just like one of those light bulb moments was, well, what if instead of dropping a, a little leaflet with jobs, what if we had a database of people who were looking for jobs and we robocall them so that when a job came in, we knew what the kind of job they were looking for, we could match it up and automatically dial them on their phone and say, hey, we have this job, are you interested? Press one, we'll connect you directly to the employer. And so we kind of tested that out with a, with a couple of humans just calling people with jobs incredible uptake and so we we basically automated that and built an entire system where the there was a website for employers they would post a job 
Um, the job would automatically be translated into like 15 different languages. We had a database of about 50,000 job seekers who were actively looking for work. We would automatically connect them, uh, connect the jobs based on skill sets, and the job seeker would just get calls with jobs and they would press one and be connected to the employer. So it was incredibly real time because the job would get posted and within an hour, we had hundreds of different job seekers who the, the employer could talk to and the cost structure no longer needed us to print and distribute this this leaflet so that was the first biz, uh, business and that was that was a long answer <laughs> <laughs> it's okay it's it's obvious that you're quite passionate about it and that's probably what it took to get get it off the ground and to make that initial start how long it sounds like you went through a number of iterations in that process and you had left your consulting job, so you'd, you'd left the safety of, you know, having predictable income, a paycheck. How long did it take for you to go from the point where you're taking this leap to the point where money's actually coming in the door? It took a while. So, so I was fortunate that my wife was working. So I was married at the time. My wife was working, and that helped. Um, we were also really fortunate that um, we had – you. I had left college right when – um, getting a mortgage was incredibly easy and you didn't need any income or any money or any down payment. And so I, my wife and I basically bought this little tiny apartment in, in New York City. And then literally 11 months later, when I left Deloitte, I sold that apartment and we made quite a bit of money. And so I was able to use that to fund um, the development of this company. Probably took about 12 to 14 months before we started generating meaningful revenue from this business. Um, and so, so there was there was a bit of time where like luck played a, a lot of role or a big role in that we were able to fund this. So, um, what, what did you think as as you know? I'm guessing that your savings account is going down throughout this 12 to 14 hour or 14 month time period, and you're going from printing things to a, a phone based business. Was she supportive throughout all of this? And yeah, so so thankfully, my my wife has been unbelievably supportive across all the different ventures. And um, she's, she's, um, she shares my passion for starting companies and is incredibly happy to help me go and do that. And at the same time, she met me um, when I was starting these little tiny businesses in college on the side. And so she kind of knew that that was going to be a big part of our life. And she not only supported it, but embraced it as well. So, Did you raise any money for, for this company or was it all self-funded? It was all self-funded. I mean, we were really, really scrappy and it was, you know, we were talking about tens of thousands of dollars, not more than that. But, um, but yeah, it was all self-funded. So what happened next? I know that you, um, you, you decided to go and get an MBA, but it was during actually you building that company. So I'm really curious, why did you decide to go back to school? Well, it was kind of like at the same time. So what happened was, um, so 12, 14 months later, we're starting to get a bunch of employers posting. We have a, a really large database of, of job seekers and that, that database was growing and growing and um, things were looking really good. And at that point, we got approached by a, a large public company to acquire us. And um, we went really far down that path. And I ultimately just felt, and this is where, you know, being young and naive and maybe a little bit too full of hubris, I just felt like I could continue to build this in a massive way. And so I turned down the acquisition offer, but at the same time started taking my eye off the ball a little bit while I was going through that process. And I also felt a little bit, I don't know, empowered. So I started expanding into more and more cities way too quickly before the model had really been figured out, um, just prematurely. And the combination of taking my eye off the ball 
and expanding so quickly basically imploded the business. And as that started to happen, I started to realize that, hey, um, there's a lot of business knowledge gaps that I have about how to really build this. And so I applied to business school and I decided to go. And then once I got into business school, I started winding down the company. So after Emerging Demographics, you joined Amazon. So you'd been a founder instead of going and building another company, you joined the corporate. What was the the reasoning behind it? There were two things. So so the... um, I guess the the official answer is I still wanted to continue filling in my knowledge gaps around business. So I felt like business school had given me a lot of um, insight into the language of business and the fundamentals of business, but it hadn't really taught me that much about product development. And I felt that Amazon would be a great place to learn product management, working with engineers, building a world-class product. Um, the second piece, and this is more the unofficial piece, is that this was 2007, 2008, and the market had just completely collapsed. And the idea of kind of having just spent through most of my savings and going out and trying that again just wasn't all that appealing. And so I thought I'd go to Amazon and uh, have a steady job for a little bit. When did this move from East Coast to L.A. happen? Yeah, so I was in Seattle. Um, so so the the I went to college in Philadelphia, moved to New York for three years, then went to Boston for business school, and then went to Seattle for Amazon. And um, after about two years, I decided that I was going to leave Amazon and start a company. And my wife and I had the conversation and she basically made a deal with me, which was you can start another company if I can go back to L.A. Um, because that's where her family is from. This is where she grew up. And so as soon as we started this this company, we moved down to L.A. And that, that's how I ended up here. So, so what was this company? What problem were you focused on? Uh, the problem I was focused on was just um, trying to start a company. So when when I, when I decided to leave Amazon, I really didn't have a great idea of what the problem was. Um, what I did know was that I really missed the idea of building. And I felt that with a little bit more headspace and being a little bit out of the, the Amazon ecosystem, I'd have um, more of an opportunity to find the problem. And, and the problem we kind of stumbled into was this idea that um, at Amazon, I was seeing just how sophisticated their pricing system was. And so every single um, item was optimized in terms of exactly how much they were charging for it. And I thought about the small businesses and I thought about how um, inadequate their pricing was and how just less sophisticated it was. And so what I wanted to do was build a yield management solution for small businesses. That was that was the hypothesis. Um, it was a pretty bad hypothesis. There are a whole bunch of reasons why that doesn't work. Um, it was something that um, we we spent about, we went to Techstars to start that business. And within the first three months, we kind of like got it to a place where a bunch of investors got excited about it and we raised some money, but then very quickly realized that was a very, very bad idea. And, and how, did, a- how did you figure that out? I'm curious. Um, can you actually, can you clarify? Yeah. You said yield management. What were you, just for anybody who might be listening who doesn't know what yield management is, can you clarify? Yeah, absolutely. So yield management, like if you t- think of a typical restaurant, they have a certain number of tables. And the the cost to have more people at those tables or less people at those tables is, is pretty minimal because most of their expenses are fixed. Um, and, and a restaurant might not be the best example. An airplane is the best example of it, where if an airplane flies and you have 30 people in there or 100 people, the costs are roughly the same. And so what you're really trying to maximize is how many people are on that plane at any given route. And you're willing to do a lot of distance 
discounting because that every incremental dollar of revenue is basically flowing all the way through the bottom line. And we wanted to take that concept and apply it to small businesses. So say you have a hair salon and you have four chairs and only two of them are full, can you apply discounts or other mechanisms to try and bring people in um, and fill those seats at all times. And in restaurants, it's around those slow times, so the afternoon and the um, early evenings when people aren't necessarily eating, what can you do to incentivize and attract people to come in? Okay, so and, is that your original hypothesis? You started there and then yes. raised some money and then something happened and you figured out not such a good idea? It, it, absolutely, exactly. So so it, it was a, an easier idea to raise money on because it's a problem everyone feels and understands. The, the problem is that the, um, I, I think as a technologist, the solution seems very obvious. You go and you figure out all sorts of different levers that you can pull to try and get people in during those slow times. The reality is the reason why a restaurant is slow at three o'clock is because no one eats at three o'clock and there's <laughs> nothing you can really do to change that. Um, and so we, we learned that the hard way because we went out and we started signing up restaurants and the hair salons and a whole bunch of small businesses. We actually were signing them up at a pretty high rate because the the pitch to them, the, the promise is really exciting. It's like you have these slow periods, we're going to help you fill them up. That's not a hard thing to sell them on. The problem is we couldn't actually get people in during those times. And so once we had enough restaurants and enough businesses signed up and we saw how hard it was to actually get those people in the door, we realized like, you know, we can go and spend the entire amount of money and we can spend all this like effort banging our heads against a wall, but fundamentally we're having a very tough time getting people to come in. And so we we kind of just were honest with ourselves and we, we had this big offsite and we all sat down and we said like, what are all the ideas we have to fix this problem? We laid them all out and then we said like, if we go and do all of these, do we think like we're actually gonna solve this problem? And, and when the answer came back, no, that's when we decided like, this isn't gonna work. So we have to go back to our investors and, and make a decision. Do we give them back the money or do we try something else? Wow, so how, how much had you raised at that point? It was like 1.7 maybe, 1.6. Was it like friends and family or was it institutional? Or? It was institutional. Okay. Good. Yeah, it was a real, it was a, a, a few venture funds. So what were those, if you don't mind sharing, what were those conversations like? Well, the internal conversations were very much oriented around like let let's get at the truth. Let's leave our emotions out of it. Let's like we we know we've put in a lot of very very long late hours trying to solve this problem, but let's be honest with ourselves. And and I think we all just knew that it wasn't working and we all felt it. Like every every time we would try something it just wasn't working. And so we got to the truth ourselves pretty quickly. What we what we were a little bit sensitive to was going back to our investors so soon after they invested the money to, to deliver this really bad set of news. And, and to me, this was one of the big turning points for us and one of the big lessons I've learned, which is um, investors are in a very high risk game. They know they're in a high risk game. They understand the risk they're taking. What they don't like is surprises and what they don't like is sugarcoating or spin. And we made the decision to go and have, I actually flew to New York to have this meeting in person and I laid out the evidence and I made sure that they understood that I had taken the time to get to this conclusion, but that I was very convinced about the conclusion without sugarcoating it. And I laid out some options for what's next, including the idea of giving back the money. And, um, and that went over really well. And uh, the very, very strong response was, hey, it seems like you guys have learned a lot and you found another opportunity um, as a result of these learnings that seems like it's worth pursuing, go for it. How did that feel? Um, 
it it was um it was bittersweet because on the one hand um i think in the very very back of my mind i was hoping that they would say something to the effect of like we've seen this play out lots of times you guys are giving up too early keep going your idea is actually awesome but the reality and the like the sweet part of it was hey they're actually investing in us not in the concept and that reinvigorated us to go and figure it out and not try to get to the right answer for our investors, but rather get to the right answer for the business. And so we just went out and we um, like with no pretenses about anything other than like, what is the right answer? What is the right business? How do we build this the right way? And from that moment on, I've, I've stopped to worry about what will my investors think? And I worry a lot more about just what is the right thing for the business. So what was the process for coming up with the new idea? Yeah, so um, we we together as a team um, kind of huddled up and we outlined all of the things that we wanted to do to try and fix the problem we were having with the business. And as part of doing that, we also identified all of the obstacles that were preventing us from from actually making what we wanted to make. And so to, to give you a little bit more context or perspective, I actually need to tell you about some of those problems. And so the, the way our initial idea worked is if you're a restaurant and you're you don't have um, patrons at three o'clock, what we would do is we would hook into a bunch of ad networks and between three and five, we would automatically go and send a bunch of ads to people in the nearby area with a discount. And the idea was they'd see the discount, they'd come in and that that was kind of the, the hypothesis. Um, there were a lot of obstacles, everything from um, when people saw the discount, they weren't clicking on it. And if they were clicking on it, they weren't coming in, yada, yada, yada. But one of the more fundamental problems we had, which was technical, is that we would hook into a bunch of ad networks to try and deliver those ads. And everyone would say, we can deliver those ads to within a mile of the restaurant. And we would go look at the logs and go look at the data. And the ads were showing up everywhere. So we had uh, 300 restaurants in New York City, and the ads that were being shown were happening in Albany and in Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so one of the things that we realized was, hey, the reason no one's coming in is because even if they do like the offer, even if they do click on it, it's way too far away. But it also got us thinking, which is, we were working with every one of the major ad mobile ad networks at the time, this is 2011. And it's like, if these guys can't do location based targeting, that's a big opportunity because the thing that makes mobile so interesting from an advertiser's perspective is that it is location enabled. It's that it's this device that we take everywhere we go. It has a GPS. Like that's what's inherently beautiful and interesting about this, this device from an advertiser standpoint. And so we said, if no one else can go and figure out how to like target location ads based on location, let's go build that. And so that was, um, basically the genesis for how we transformed Thinknear from a yield management solution for small businesses to a ad tech infrastructure play to bring in the era of um, hyper-local ads. How long did it take you to build a prototype? Uh, it was pretty quick. So um, when you're working with a totally blank slate, you can move a lot faster. And, and one of the things we realized was that the reason why other companies, other ad networks were not able to target ads by location is because they were all built either off of the backs of a um, advertising solution that was built for the web 
or it was built from this from the ground up but by by people who had come from the online digital display world and so the way they thought about the 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 infrastructure the stack to show an ad was all from the perspective of like what matters in in the online world and in the online world it's all about cookies and retargeting all these things that just don't matter in mobile and so just by coming at it with a totally new perspective and saying out, we're going to flip the model on its head. It's all going to be about location. How should we build this? And then borrowing heavily the pieces that we could from the established model, um, we were able to bring it to market in about six months. And the two caveats being that we were working 14 to 16 hour days, six to seven days a week, easily without exaggeration. And that my co-founder was incredibly talented and he built the system way, way faster than I think it would have taken most people. But basically from pivot to, hey, we're ready to take on our first advertiser was about six months. So how do how did, if you don't mind me asking, how did your team react? Is you've you've gone through, you spent about six months chasing something, decided it wasn't the right idea, talked to investors, you have another chance, and then you ran at a goal for another six months. What was that like? How did your team react? Did they buy into the new vision? Well, it's um I think there are a couple of things that were at play. The first is we were a very small team. There were four of us. And making these changes of direction, are it's a lot easier when it's just four people because most of the time when it's four people, they're buying less into the idea and more into or, or the business and more into the idea of like us as a team, we can do whatever it is that we set out to do. And it's one of the big lessons I've taken from, from my, my time in venture, which is, you know, it's easier to raise big swaths of money now early. And one of the dangers there is you bring on a bigger team, which then means it's much, much harder to make these iterations and pivots, um, which are just essential. And so by, by virtue of being four people, that was a lot easier. I think the second thing was we all lived the pain that we were trying to solve. And so we'd gone out and we tried to build this thing and we were stuck on many levels, but one of them being that we couldn't target ads um, by location. And so everyone understood the pain point and it wasn't hard to kind of craft a vision around why location would end up mattering in, in mobile ads and how big of a market that would be. And so, um, and I think generally we just all got along really well. So it was kind of like, this is the journey we signed up for. It's not going to be easy. Let's go do this. Um, and fortunately, like, you know, we, we had spent a few months trying to build it, then a few months actually, like, or the other product and building the new one. And very soon thereafter, we started getting a ton of traction. I don't know if we hadn't gotten that traction right away, if I had been able to keep the team together, because we were really burned out. We were really burning that midnight oil. And I don't think I would have gotten that second chance or that third chance. So who, what, it sounds like, you saw the problem. A lot of other advertisers saw this problem. What was what happened when you when you did get some traction there? How long were you in market? Yeah. Um, so I think in retrospect, it's really obvious that location is really important in showing an ad. It wasn't back then because most of the people that were coming at it were basically saying, "Oh, mobile. It's just a small PC." And it, it kind of reminded me of like um, I'm I'm a student of history, and one of the the, the things that I I find most fascinating is that whenever a new media platform emerges, people have a very tough time grasping like what makes it unique and interesting. And so, like when the first TVs came out, what people were doing is they were literally um, videotaping people in a broadcasting booth kind of doing a radio show. And that's th those were the first TV programs. And like to me, that's so indicative of how people just 
fundamentally misunderstand new mediums. And the same thing was happening in mobile. People were carrying around these phones and advertisers were saying, I want to show ads there. And they were saying, okay, let's just miniaturize the ads and think of it as like a mini PC. And what we came away saying is like, no, that, that's fundamentally the wrong way to think about mobile. What makes it unique and interesting is that it's portable, that you take it with you everywhere you go and that it's got a GPS device. And so now all of a sudden, it's not just about who you are and what you're consuming on that device. It's where you are and what's happening around you that matters. And that was pretty novel at the time. And so a lot of what we did was evangelize that. So just a lot of speaking and a lot of conferences and just being out there talking about why location matters. And most people didn't didn't fully get it, but some advertisers started to 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 kind of bite. And um, it was actually maybe two weeks after the system was live that um, David Tannenbaum, who was the first person we ever hired, he sold a $150,000 campaign to BlackBerry, um, wow. which, which was just like an, this amazing thing. And I couldn't believe, I just really did not think it was real. Even after it was signed, I just did not think this could have possibly been a real thing. Um, but BlackBerry wanted to target people who were near Best Buys. And then literally the next day, we got um, a, a campaign for $50,000 for um, for eBay. And then we got one for, um, was, I don't even remember all the brands that we had, but it was like every blue chip brand that you could think of, just one after the other, day after day after day. And we went from you know zero to product in six months, and then from zero in revenue um, once we launched to about 150000 a month in about two and a half months. So it was really, really quick ramp when, once it started to like work. Quickly doing some hyperscaling, yeah. hiring as fast as we can. Yes. So it, it eventually you you sold the company. Is that somebody came along and acquired Thinknear? What happened? Yeah. So basically we were going out there and we were like talking all about how location mattered so much and how it was going to change mobile. And um, one of the companies that was keenly aware of how important location was to mobile was Telenav because they had built the first um, sort of like GPS um, app for the iPhone and for for mobile devices. And so they knew location really mattered. They understood what we were talking about and they were thinking about getting into the ad, the location-based ad space. And so they came to us and they wanted to do a partnership. We did a couple of tests together and some partnerships. And really the idea was like, can we partner together? They had a bigger sales team. They had more scale. Um, and then very quickly, they they turned the conversation into an acquisition conversation. And um, having had the experience that I had at my earlier earlier company, where I was all full of hubris and thought I could build this into a billion dollar company, I saw the opportunity. I saw that it was a fair deal. That they really were willing to invest in the growth, um, and and we sold pretty early. It's wonderful. So all of the investors were taken care of. The team was taken care of. Yeah, it was it was a good exit. We had raised I think 1.7 million in total, and we sold for 22 and a half. So um, it was a good outcome for everyone, and it was very fast. It was I think um, the entire journey was about 18 months. Eli stayed with Telenav after the acquisition, but after a couple of years, he missed startup life. He decided to found a new company, Sense360. So can you explain Sense360 to me? 
<laughs> in a way that my mother would understand, my Polish mother would understand. <laughs> well, that's it's a little bit tricky because I, I still can't get my mom to understand it. So. <laughs> um, no, but basically what happens is most companies, most major companies make lots and lots of decisions across their every day. So everything from who is my customer to why do they come to me? What products should I build for them? How should I talk to them? What advertising should I do? These are all questions that companies have to answer. And, and for the most part, the way they get the data to answer these questions is through traditional market research, which means that they're spending a lot of money on surveys. So if McDonald's is trying to figure out who is my customer and what do they want from me and what should I be serving them, they're going to go and have someone stand in front of a McDonald's with a clipboard asking people a bunch of questions like, how many times in the last year did you come to McDonald's and why and so on and so forth. And McDonald's will do this maybe once every couple of years and they'll compile all that market research and they'll make a whole bunch of really, really big strategic strategic decisions. And and that, that's been the way it's been done for the last 50 years. What's changed is that all of a sudden, no, being able to understand where people go and why they go to McDonald's and how often they go and what they're consuming and all of these things that you traditionally had to ask the consumer to tell you, you can now get them to consent to share that data passively, which means you can get a much, much, much higher fidelity. You can get a lot more clarity about what they're actually doing and you can do it with a lot more accuracy. And so the the idea behind Sense360 is to get consumers to share all sorts of different data sets that allow us to build a real-time market research suite of tools for some of the largest companies to use as they make decisions. How did you decide on pursuing that specific idea and that's solving that specific problem? It was also an iteration and an evolution. It was not exactly where we started since 360. But the, the thing that I find fascinating is this idea of all this new data that's being created and trying to figure out how it can be used to help make better decisions and better serve consumers. And so we went through a bunch of iterations trying to get there, but ultimately, um, drawing on our experience at Think Near in terms of location and how powerful that data set is and um, some of the relationships we had built, we were able to start cobbling together a bit of this data and kind of seeing just how powerful it was and then starting to talk to companies and trying to understand how they make decisions and how we could build uh, solutions for them. And um, it, it, it's been three and a half years. It, it, has not been, it has not been an easy thing to solve for because um, every company is unique and trying to build something that works across them and then selling into these very, very large corporations um, just takes some time. But I'm really excited that we now have over 25% of the top 50 restaurant chains using our data to make their decisions. So it's um, it's taken some time, but it's been really fun. How did you decide on fast food? Because th these are your these are your customers. Were you hoping so for, for some, you know, free meals or was there <laughs> a different, different reasoning for it? Um, we felt very strongly that to be able to help a company make decisions, we needed to not just give them data, but give them solutions. And if we wanted to give them solutions, those solutions had to be really tailored to their category because every category of vertical has different nuances and it would be very hard to be everything to everyone. And so we, we made a very conscious decision. We were going to focus on a single vertical and we were going to be as specific as possible. So it wasn't just restaurants, it was fast food restaurants. And, um, and so once we made the decision to focus on one vertical, then it was about which vertical. And for a whole bunch of reasons, restaurants just felt like the most applicable. They have the most number of locations. Um, there is less breakage, meaning if someone goes into a restaurant, almost always they're actually purchasing, which is not the case at like a Macy's or a Target. So there were a lot of reasons why we felt that restaurants were a good first place to go after. You've built now 
one, two, three, four businesses, because I'm counting the one that you build. Uh, <laughs> in high school. Yeah, <laughs> at school as well. And in two cases, you were the sole founder. And in two cases, you had a co-founder. What works better? Uh, it's definitely better to have a co-founder. Uh, there, there's no question about that in my mind. Um, I... Uh, I took a course while I was in business school called, called Founder's Dilemma by Professor Noam Wasserman. And it was such an enlightening experience for me because he goes through the different decisions that you make when starting a company. And one of the big ones is to have a co-founder or not. And I, I just find that like you need people with complementary skill sets that all have the same vested interest. And um, it's just so much less lonely when you have a co-founder and you're able to do so much more and there's more support. And like, I don't think I would have made the mistake of not selling my first company if I had had a co-founder. And I can identify a bunch of mistakes that I made in those first two that I wouldn't have made without, with a co-founder and a bunch of mistakes I probably would have made at these last two ventures if I didn't have a co-founder. So I strongly advocate for one. That's our show for this week. If you enjoyed it, make sure to subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, add a review to let us know what you think. You can also find us at laisgoodforyou.com. See you next week.